Hello, I'm Nicole Abadie and I write about books for Good Weekend. Welcome to the Books, Books, Books podcast in which I interview the best writers from Australia and overseas about their latest books. Thank you for joining me. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the country where I live and work and from where I'm joining this conversation, the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past and present, to the elders of all communities and cultures across Australia and to leaders of the future. You can listen to this podcast, all of the episodes at nicoleabadie.com.au or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Today, I'm delighted to be speaking to Sigrid Nunes, author of eight novels and one memoir. Sigrid and I will be discussing her latest novel, What Are You Going Through? published in Australia by Hachette in September. Sigrid's first book, A Feather on the Breath of God, was published in 1995. Since then, she has won many, many awards for her writing and her work has been translated into more than 20 languages. Her work has been published in the New York Times, the New York Review of Books, the Paris Review and the Wall Street Journal, amongst others. She has taught at many universities, including Columbia and Princeton, and is currently writer-in-residence at Boston University in the Creative Writing Department. In 2018, Sigrid won the prestigious National Book Award for Fiction for The Friend, a critically acclaimed international bestseller, which was on many of the best books of 2018 lists, and I have to say was one of my favourites for that year. In 2020, Sigrid was made a Guggenheim Fellow. Sigrid, welcome to Books, Books, Books. Thank you so much for having me. Would you like to start by telling us what your book, What Are You Going Through, is about? Well, to start with, What Are You Going Through is narrated by a woman uh, who is in her 60s, say, and she begins talking to the reader she begins by talking about various encounters that she's had in the course of her, in, in that she's having really in the course of her life. Uh, someone that she meets at a gym, for example, which then makes her think about someone else that she knew longer ago. You know, the kind of people that anybody would meet in, in the ordinary course of their life. And these people, the ones that she is talking about are all people that, that have, that, that want to talk about something. It's not that they have some extremely interesting story to tell, as in, guess what happened to me last night? But they talk, and she listens, and she records what they've said. She records that for the reader. She reports that to the reader. And among the people, I suppose the most important person that she talks to is someone that she does know, not a stranger. A lot of these people are strangers. The most important person is a woman that she knew back in school days uh, who lives in a different city from her. And she goes to visit that woman. And that woman uh, has a terminal illness and has gone through chemotherapy, has gone through the hell of chemotherapy only to find out that it didn't work, not the excuse she even had some exper experimental treatments, nothing worked. And so now she knows that, uh, that there's no, she's been told that there is no hope for her case. And, uh, and so she's thinking that rather than suffer, suffer for a long period of time 
living a, a life that that could hardly be called real living in her in her view because it would be so unpleasant that she that she'll take her own life and she has even procured the euthanasia drugs to do this but then she needs someone to be with her for those for those for that last period of time uh, where she takes care of last things and where she finally then takes her life so she she has asked other people people very close to her uh, and they've all said, I cannot possibly do that. I, I would not be able to do that. So she turns to this old friend and she talks her into it, basically. Could I ask you now to, uh, to read an extract for us, please? I'd love to read an extract. What, what, I'm, what, I'm, reading, what I'm reading now is um, in the course of the book, uh, uh, I often, you know, as I say, I tell these stories. And uh, a lot of them are women's stories. So this here's one little little story that she tells. Uh, women's stories are often sad stories. Like most people past the age of 60, woman A often thinks about growing old. At the same time, she often thinks back to those years when old age seemed a very distant thing, more like an option than a law of nature. After graduating from college, she had gone to live in a large city, in those days, rather than look for a husband or even a steady boyfriend, she was happy to date several different men, and given that she was attractive, fun-loving, and not terribly choosy, this goal was not hard to achieve. Of course, this playing the field wasn't going to last. It wasn't supposed to last. Remarkable, in fact, how fast it got old. And she had imagined herself in due time settling down with the one. But long before this could happen, now and then when she happened to see a certain type of couple, an elderly woman accompanied by some geezer with rounded shoulders and sparse white flyaway hair, his belt riding high on his ribs, she would feel a sort of ache for the old man she herself was going to end up with one far off day. That man, as she saw him, though bereft of youth, would still have certain essential things. To begin with, Thanks to a long and successful career, he'd have plenty of money to live on. He'd have a good heart. And in spite of the frailties of old age, he'd have his dignity. It goes without saying he'd have all his marbles. He and she would live a quiet but stimulating life together, a rich, elegant life as she saw it, going to concerts and plays and movies and traveling abroad, though never as part of any god-awful retirees group tour, please. Past the age of passion, they would still be romantic as anyone who saw them as she did against the backgrounds of those foreign cities and exotic landscapes could tell. As the years passed, the image of the old man began to appear to her more and more clearly, almost as if he were walking toward her. But as more time passed, his image began as if walking backward to recede. And now that she finds herself facing a different old age from the one she used to imagine, the question won't leave her alone. It plays in her head like something from an old song or a poem she was forced to memorize in school. Where is the old man? Or where is the kind, companionable old dear? Could somebody please tell her that kind of woman's story? David, thank you. 
I'd like to start by talking a little bit about the friendship between these two women. So the narrator tells us at the beginning, she describes the friend as a very dear old friend. How long have they known each other and when or under what circumstances did they first meet? Well, they met in college where um, they were, at least for a time, roommates with one other uh, woman who neither of them uh, know what has happened to. They haven't stayed in touch with that third person. But then over time, um, you know, as happens, they would, they, they, would, uh, they would stay in touch, but they didn't live in the same town. And for periods of time, they wouldn't be in touch at all. But so they always stayed in touch. But by the time the book begins, they're not close friends at that time. They were young. And they haven't seen each other for some time, have they? They haven't seen each other for some time when the, the friend of the narrator becomes ill. And that is, in fact, why, uh, why they are seeing each other now. They've been in touch, but they haven't seen each other. Sigrid, you've said that uh, when you start a book, you don't start with an idea, but that you always start with a character or a story. What did you start with here? Uh, well, here, um, what happened was it was time to start another book, and uh, and I thought uh, what to do, what what to put down, just what to put down. I don't want to really want to think what it's about. I want to, I want something to happen, and so I I it came into my head to say I went to hear a man give a talk. That was the, it came to my head and I thought, I, I like the sound of that. It's, it's story promising because did you, what, what did you talk about? What was, what was it about? Where are you? So then I just went on with that. And, um, and then somehow in those early pages, I decided I wanted her to be, have traveled to somewhere, uh, not, not in her hometown and be in an Airbnb and be by herself. And then I thought, she's oh, what's she there for? Well, she's there to visit someone who's ill. And then I thought, well, you, you, what's he, you, know, you need to have the talk, since that's what you seem so important to start with. So I, I, I wrote his talk and some reaction to it uh, from listeners. And by then I had a lot of things that I was going to have to follow through on. Sigrid, your last book, The Friend, opens with the suicide of the narrator's friend and mentor, and that really haunts the book, um, as it were. The circumstances here are different. Here, the narrator's friend is actually dying of terminal cancer. But why did you return to the topic of suicide in this book? What made you decide to revisit that, as it were? Well, that is a very interesting question because, you know, in a strange way, I, I didn't... I didn't think that that's what I would, I, I didn't think about it because, um, yes, uh, euthanasia, I mean, it, for her to take those drugs or to say she's going to take those drugs, it, it, that is, that is suicide, but it's so different from the suicide in, in the friend, which comes as a shock, which nobody knew was going to happen. He didn't leave a note. He didn't explain anything. Um, it's a mystery that she then tries, that that narrator then tries to solve. Uh, here, it just, it just seemed completely different to me that somebody who knew, who had been told, who was sure that uh, they were dying anyway, even though it is suicide, it seems quite different to me. So the narrator asks at one point, 
why shouldn't dying people have the right to end their own lives? And that's really a central question of the novel. In this case, you make it very clear what the friend's reasons are. Could you talk a little bit about that? Why does she want to do this? She's been given a terminal diagnosis, as you say. She's been given probably the maximum of a year to live. There's a couple of reasons that she has why she wants to choose the time of her own death. Could you tell us what they are? Well, the main thing is, I believe that if she were, if she were told that you only have a year to li live, but that year is going to be lived uh, completely pain-free and uh, without any of the agony uh, that, uh, you know, that, 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 that one usually has to endure in a situation like this. Um, she, you know, what she, she didn't want to, um, she didn't want to suffer, first of all. She didn't want to suffer terribly. She already had. Um, the, the, the problem is also that the, the, um, the medication uh, that she was given first to try to stop the disease or, or, or help the disease and, and mitigate certain things then caused other, you know, agonizing uh, uh, physical conditions. You know, it just seemed not to make any sense to her uh, that if this, she felt that it, it wouldn't really be living. It wouldn't really be me because when you're in that kind of pain, the only thing that you, that you uh, think about is the pain. So in one way, she wanted to die as her whole self. There's a great, um, there's a great line that you, that you have the friend say. One of the other things that she says is that she's really sick of people telling her to keep fighting, as if this is a battle between good and evil, a battle between the patient and the cancer. And the friend says, why should cancer be some test of a person's mettle? You know, why should people who are suffering from cancer be divided into either fighters who are heroic or quitters who are weak. Would you like to talk a little bit about that? It, it, it's actually the, the the friend who's dying who who says that, where she's telling her, uh, she's telling the narrator, um, this is how it is. People mm. want you to keep fighting for some reason. People, we, you know, in our culture, it seems to be the only way we've come up with how to deal with the, the terribleness of. Of, of a terminal illness is to see it as a hero narrative. Um, and what's troubling to her is, is not just the battle aspect of it, um, but it's that it, it's a battle between good and evil. Uh, the battle is, you know, the, the patient is good, the, the disease is evil. So there has to be, you know, a, 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 a winner and a loser. And so, um, if you win, you know, if you beat cancer, then you, you, you're treated like a hero. You fought and you won. And, but, but if you don't, uh, you know, then you, you are made to feel like a loser, like you didn't, you didn't fight hard enough. And then, then you have that guilt uh, compounding already this agony you're going through. On the other hand, I have to say that I can see how for some people it, it, would, it could be very helpful for people to be saying fight, 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 and to see it as a, I'm going to beat this and so on. It really depends on who you are, but I certainly do understand this, this other idea, how it could be, how it could put the patient in a strange position, because it certainly, it certainly isn't true that, um, you know, that there's a certain kind of person with a certain kind of strength that, that 
can beat cancer. I just, that's not how cancer works. So as long as it's understood, you know, what it means to have this disease and what it can do and how there can be a situation in which no matter how strong you are, no matter how this, that, or the other thing you are, no matter how hard you fight, uh, the, the disease is going to win because that is just something that happens in nature. Sigrid, it's a very big thing that the friend asks of the narrator, isn't it? What she's asking her to do is to come away with her somewhere. And the friend who has in her possession this lethal drug at some point without warning will take that drug. And she says that the real reason that she needs someone to be there with her is she wants there to be peace. She wants there to be order. But it's a big ask. What is the narrator's initial response when she's asked? Um, I think she she starts to talk and then her, she she kind of throat spasms. Um, she's completely not expecting this request, and uh, and then her her friend decides to make it in a public place at a bar where they're having drinks. And she says, "Well, well, for one thing, I wish you hadn't. I wish." we weren't in a public place and her friend says, Oh, but I did that on purpose because I, you know, I thought it would keep us from getting too emotional. I want this, you know, to be a cool decision. It's, it's their bar from college days. It's where they got, where they would stumble home from after um, and where they even did homework. Uh, Okay. Then she, then she feels that she should say yes. And she does. Then she, uh, it, it regrets it, but feels that now, now she can't possibly say no, although she is honest and she tells her friend that she's having enormous qualms. At that point, her friend just very impatiently says, do you want me to do this by myself? Okay, you know, because I, I'm not going to go through my entire list of acquaintances, so I'm going to do it anyway. So, so there's that. And then at a certain point when they're very, when they are very quiet together in the house and, and, uh, and, and she, she has accepted that this is what's happening. She, 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 well, wait, there's one other step. Then for a while, she, she kind of, she's in denial. She thinks, well, just because she has the drug and we're going there doesn't mean it's going to happen. I happen to know, and this is true, that most people who get hold of a euthanasia drug never end up taking it. She says she wants to think, well, maybe she'll think, oh, this isn't what I want to do and we'll be going home. So then, 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 then that troubles her because she's saying, well, wait a minute, I agreed to do this. Well, in my head, I'm saying it's not going to happen. And then finally, as time goes by, she, uh, she thinks, I'm doing this because I would want someone to do this for me in the same situation. I would need help and I would want someone to, to, to say yes to me and in some way, because it is true that when you see somebody die, you're also seeing yourself die. It's, it's not possible not to because you know that that's what you're looking at. You know that you're looking at a future moment for yourself. Mm. Um, and so she has this feeling that, uh, you know, this strange feeling that her friend, unwittingly, of course, is, is even showing her the way. Mm. This is what's going to happen. We're going to come to talk a little bit later about the title of the book and the significance of that title, but we're really touching on it now, aren't we, that the, the essence of what really um, persuades the narrator to say yes is that empathy, that compassion, that putting herself in somebody else's shoes and thinking, how would I feel if it was me? 
Yes. There are risks for the narrator, aren't there? There, there are actually legal risks for her. What are those risks? It's against the law. Mm. I mean, it is indeed against the law where I live. You can't assist someone assist someone's death. Um, you know, I'm 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 sure people have. Well, I know that people have been in this situation, but you know, of course, someone dies, you 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 call the police, the coroner, whatever, and they do ask questions and they mm. do investigate. Mm. And then I suppose it would just depend on exactly, uh, you know, on certain people's decisions whether they, or not they would want to. Um, you know, bring charges. That's another Certainly. sort of layer of complexity, isn't it, for the narrator that in a, as well as the emotional issues, she's she's got to be a little bit self-protective and the friend is concerned about that and says to her, now, you know nothing about this, we're going to pretend that you knew nothing about this, that's going to be your position. So the friend is conscious that she's exposing Absolutely. the narrator to some sort of liability. Once the yes. narrator agrees and they do go away together, what impact does that does the fact that the narrator has said yes have on their friendship well neither of them was actually thinking about this because of course they had larger a larger thing to think about but in the peace and quiet of that apartment and and just hanging out together um they 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 begin to have very deep feelings for each other um you know, a, a real tenderness and affection. Um, and it increases in intensity. And also, um, as, as the narrative describes it, she, 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 for whatever reason, she's able to intuit. They're so in tune with each other that she can intuit things from her friend. As she puts it, she'll, uh, she, her, her, the, the moment that she's about to say to her friend, do you, do you want me to get something for you to drink? Her friend will say, um, could you get me an orange juice? Uh, or they're watching television and she's just reaching for the remote when her friend says, can we change the channel? And this every day, this is happening more and more. So they're, they're, they're getting closer and closer in that way. And, uh, and, 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 there, and there's, there's no panic. You know, there's a period of time where, where it's really very calm and they're very in tune with each other and they're not unhappy. They're not, they're not at all unhappy. Sigurd, let's talk a little bit about hope. What is the role of hope in your novel? Well, in her case, for example, um, it's very interesting because first she was diagnosed uh, at that point, there most certainly was hope. There was some hope. But she decided that she would be one of those people and there are plenty of people who, who they're with, there's plenty of hope in their case, but they say, but I'm not going through chemo. If I survive this, it's fine, but I'm not, I don't want to go through that. And if that's what I have to do to survive, I don't want that because, well, for all kinds of reasons. And then all the friends and family say, oh, no, no, that's not the right idea because then you're not giving yourself any chance at all. That's when they get into this, you fight, please, please fight. Uh, and that's why she immediately changes her mind. She, she, you know, it's just at first where she says, no, I don't want to do that. And then she changes her mind. And then unfortunately, because this is how life goes, um, the treatments did not work in her case, uh, neither the, the, the standard ones nor the experimental one that she's on. And then she's really angry and she says, I should have 
stuck by my guns. I should, I was right the first time, but that's not the case. And, uh, and now she just doesn't want to be foolish. She, 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 you know, as she says, she says, if you, I mean, a lot of people will tell you, uh, you know, a lot of garbage if, if that's what you want to hear. But if you really want the truth, your doctors will give it to you straight. And they, and if it's terminal, they will tell you it's terminal so that you can do what you need to do. Um, and at that point, she doesn't have any hope of surviving, but she has hope of, of, um, of dying, of dying a, a good death or of dying a, a, a death that isn't, that, 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 that she, where she has some control. Um, but there's no, but there's no hope for her to survive. There's that. But as far as, um, uh, you know, the, the, the woman in the Airbnb where she, where she says, you, you can't just get up there and tell people there's no hope. You know, you can't tell someone else. What are you doing there with hope? No hope. You, you, you get, get rid of it. If a person feels hope, they feel hope. Yeah. You're not going to take it away from them. Yeah. I want to ask you now about the concept of language, which you talk about particularly later in the book. So the narrator is a writer, as is her friend. That's one of the big things they have in common. And the narrator had originally planned to keep a journal recording the last days of her friend's life, but she decides not to. And she gives a, a couple of reasons. I'm, I'm just going to read these quotes because I think they're, they're so powerful. One of the reasons she gives is language would end up falsifying everything, as language always does. And then, and I think this might be my favourite quote in the book, Sigrid, no matter how hard we try to put the most important things into words, it is always like toe dancing in clock. Could you talk a little about the inadequacy of language as a means of conveying experience? I think it's something that, uh, that, that, that people know about from when, when there are certain experiences and and the the uh, the need to communicate is is dire. Somebody somebody comes to you and tells you some very very bad news that's happened to them, and you go oh, the the <laughs> oh I'm so sorry, <laughs> um, I'm so sorry for your loss. Or, can I do something? I mean, oh, they're just the same things that people say. Words fail you at these very critical times, at the at moments when you when you really, really, really wish there was something that you could say. Um, uh, so, I mean, I, I bring up at one point this uh, this famous letter of, of Henry James to his friend uh, Grace Norton, which you know, which is so beautifully written and which has been presented many times as an example of, um, of the most beautiful condolence letter, uh, the most beautiful um, uh, expression of empathy for somebody else's suffering. And uh, he begins by saying, I hardly know what to say. <laughs> you know, so even, I, I mean, that just sort of... Um, so, so I don't know, the, the language of, of grief, of consoling... Um, you know, it's it, it it seems washed out and tired, and and as I say, it's always like it's like always to the to the side of what you what you really want to say. And then even if you if you struggle, for example, you say, "I'm going to write a letter to my suffering friend. I'm going to spend a week on it if I have to. I am going to find the words." 
you still don't find it. You still don't find that because when you do that, you end up borrowing or being pretentious or whatever, languaging, but you know, you don't, you don't, you know, you're not able to do it or very few, you know, very few people would be able to do it. So I think having that in life, whether you're a writer or not, whoever you are, um, you know, constantly coming up against that, these very important moments in your life where, where you say, well, why, why, where are the words? Why are words mm. failing me? Why can't I, why can't I say what I feel? That's the other thing I've said. Say, there's a lovely section here where you talk, where there's a conversation between the narrator and someone else where the other person, I can't remember which of the ones it is, but they hypothesise about, it's almost as if we've all been put on earth with a different language. So you talk about the, the Tower of Babel, we weren't, each individual on this earth was given a different language, and that's why it's impossible for us to understand each other. Right, right. instead of instead of um, just all different nations and tribes being given different languages, so that they wouldn't understand each other, and become as powerful as the Lord. Yes, that in fact it was every single individual who was given their own language, but don't know it, mm. and so. They, they think that when they talk that their language is the same language as everyone else in their tribe, yes. but not in the world. But in fact, no, everyone has their own language. I want to talk about the narrator herself and something that you alluded to earlier. This narrator is a very good listener. As you pointed out, the book starts with her listening to a lot of different people unburden themselves about different things. At one point in the book, narrator gets talking to the son of her elderly neighbour and the son's worried about his mother and asks if, if the narrator would go and check on her every once in a while. And the narrator says, yes, of course. And she says something really interesting. She says, other people's lives and specifically their remembrance of things past are a source of genuine interest to me. Another example of the narrator as a listener is towards the end when the narrator is away with her friend and as their intimacy grows, the friend talks more and more about her life as a child, as a mother, as a teacher and the narrator says that she is really fascinated by this and, in fact, she says it's almost indecent how riveted she is. The narrator is a writer, as is her friend, how important is it for a writer to be a good listener and to pay attention? I think it's absolutely critical to pay attention and to listen to. I mean, um, you know, I, I, I certainly don't, you know, I, I, I say that she was riveted um, and not with the idea, although a reader might think this, um, that she's ever going to write about it because this book is not supposed to be something that the writer wrote about. Right. This is happening while it's happening. Um, but it, it, it's true that uh, it, it's true that you I, I just don't see. I mean, it depends on what kind of writer you are. Maybe if you're a, a very um, I mean, mo you know, most writers, what they're writing about is human experience one way or another. Even if it's very exper experimental writing. But, you know, um, if you're if you're dealing with people and their emotions and their experiences and how they relate to the world, um, you know, if you don't, if you don't pay attention and close attention and listen carefully, you won't have any material. You know, you won't know how people are, how they think, how they feel. Um, 
and you you know as much as you it, it can in different situations i mean i think you also of course get a lot from reading you get a lot from from the movies and so on but um but yeah you need it you need a you need to pay attention to everything and you, and you need to, to to understand something about how people behave in certain situations Sigrid, let's talk now about the title, What Are You Going Through? That comes from something the French philosopher Simone Weil said, uh, and you, you quoted as an epitaph at the beginning of part one. Love of our neighbour in all its fullness simply means being able to say, what are you going through? Why did you choose that as your title? That came very early. That, I think that you know, I mean, that came as early as the book came. I mean, I, I had this title from the very beginning, um, and I never had another title. And I the same thing happened with the friend, and that's very unusual. And I remember thinking with the friend, "Oh, now what if the what if my editor and others say we we like the book, but the it's, the friend it's too you know can we have it?" And I thought, "Oh, that'll be so. I'll be very sad because I'm so attached to the friend. This one too." Um, I've known about this. Uh, I've known about this quote from this essay of hers for decades, and um, you know, it's always struck me as a as a perfectly expressed idea, absolutely true. Um, and um, you know, and and that just that idea, you know, saying it, you know, what what are you going through? Um, it just. Uh, it just it just seemed to me to be to be what I wanted to write about to be already already there ready for me. Um, I didn't give it a lot of thought. It which it just it just seemed right from the very beginning. Is that sort of the nub of the book, Sigrid? That that this idea of love for your neighbour, love for other people, love for a dear friend. That it's all about empathy and compassion and trying to understand their situation to put yourself in their shoes. That that's that's the essence of friendship. Well, and also uh, listening. Mm. You know, you 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 know mm. that you know, people need to be heard. I mean, maybe you can't do anything, but you see, if you say, "What are you going through?" Something's going to happen. If, if they if they trust you, they're going to say, and that in it, in itself is going to be a big help. For example, uh, the um, the expression "talk to me." I've been in situations where, you know, I've made a phone call or I've gone to see somebody and, and I start immediately, something's wrong, I'm, I'm crying or whatever, something's happened. And the person will say, what? Talk to me. And that is such a comforting thing to hear. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's really the right thing to say, speaking of what, what language you want to help somebody talk to me. That's the first. There's the first thing that has has to happen. Someone has to want to listen, and I think that what are you going through is 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 very similar. But I also was thinking about, um, and this is in the book, the um, the quote that's usually attributed to Plato, um, and I I, I love this. Uh, Be kind, because everyone you meet is going through a hard time. Mm. Something like that. It's, I've seen it, you know, in different uh, variations of it. But it doesn't sound like Plato. I mean, but it, but it, but 
you see there, and that I think it's it's similar. It's similar, very similar. And then the again, Henry James again. Um, there there are three important things in life. The first is to be kind. The second is to be kind, and the th- the third is to be kind. Uh, so I think these are all, 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 you know, easy, very, very, very simply put, but, but perfect expressions of, you know, you, you want to know what the situation is. You want to know what people want. You want to know what people need, you know, the kindness, people need kindness. We need, we need kindness, a lot more of it. And it's true. I mean, if this is, this is a kind of kindness and if people, uh, you know, if, if suddenly tomorrow there was this ex, everybody woke up with an excess of kindness mm-hmm. for just 24 hours, <laughs> the world would be transformed. When the two of them are away, the friend who, part of her being so ill is that she stopped wanting to read, she stopped wanting to be right, to write. But initially when they're away, she really enjoys uh, the narrator reading to her. When they're away, the friend says to the narrator, please don't read books about the horribleness of modern life. I don't want to hear those. And she says, whatever happened to Faulkner's idea that a writer's job was to lift people up? I'd like to ask you about that. Is that how you see the role of the writer? And it seemed to me that that's particularly pertinent right now during the pandemic you see a lot of people asking, but what can I read to make me feel better? What can I read that will give me comfort? A lot of people are looking for that sort of uplifting, comforting reading. Could you talk a little bit about that, about the role of the writer and uh, that concept of having an obligation to lift people up? I don't actually think a writer has the obligation to lift people up. I don't believe that the writer has that obligation. Um, when, uh, when she is speaking, when the narrator is having a conversation with, uh, with her ex and he says, if, um, if every poet wrote a poem about, uh, climate change tomorrow wouldn't save one tree, uh, she doesn't say this, but she could have, it is not the poet's job to save trees. Mm. Um, and it isn't the writer's job to lift anyone up. I don't think. I mean, I think that that happens. I think that writers do it all the time. I think that artists do it all the time. Um, but it's the writer's job to to present uh, their vision. Their, what, it's the writer's job to to say what what they see. Um, and to to uh, to try to present uh, human experience as 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 they see it. Um, in in many cases, that might not be an uplifting vision, but that doesn't make it not true. So um, I think that the the writer's obligation is to the writer, is to the writer's vision, and and to the kind of story that. Uh, that uh, that the writer can tell, I think I think it would really be a mistake to 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 say to to all writers now now look here life has become very dark, and it's your job to lift up people's spirits. 
it isn't. And um, there is plenty of wonderful entertainment out there and there's music and there's all kinds of things, but that can't be the writer's job. Um, but then there's one more really important aspect, which is if, if, uh, if, uh, if a writer uh, produces a book or a poem or a story um, that is beautiful, no matter how sad it is, as I say, or, 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 or a movie, I mean, they watch, together they watch the movie Wake, Make Way for Tomorrow, which is, which is so sad. Orson Welles called it the saddest movie ever made. And then afterwards they're crying and uh, the narrator says, well, but we didn't regret seeing it. We, not at all, because uh, 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 any story beautifully told lifts up the spirits. So that's the job. The job is to create something beautiful and true. And that, that should lift the spirits. It's cer certainly not to, not to say, you know, um, you know we, we need something that will give us hope. It is, not, it is not the poet's job to save trees, and it is not, it's, not the, it's not the storyteller's job to, to give hope. Sigrid, I had that quote written down, and I think it's a very good one to end on because, it, to me, it, it, um, it's very relevant to what you've written in this beautiful book. No matter how sad, a beautifully told story lifts you up. And that's the answer that you're giving, isn't it? That the, it's not the subject matter that needs to be uplifting, but the writing needs to be good. Yes, absolutely, in my view. Thank you so much for talking to me today on Books, Books, Books. Thank it's you. An absolute pleasure. Thank you. It was certainly a pleasure for me. Thank you for listening to Books, Books, Books. If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go to my website, nicoleabbadie.com.au to listen to all the episodes and find out more about the podcast. You can also find me, Nicole Abbadie, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and look for my reviews in Good Weekend. You can subscribe to Books, Books, Books at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and all the usual places. Since it's a new podcast, it would be lovely if you could go to any of these platforms and give Books, Books, Books a rating or review. Thank you. I look forward to talking books with you again soon.